DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Today on Political Rewind, as state officials work to come up with a plan for expanding health care coverage, a new study shows they face big challenges extending coverage to many of Georgia's poorest residents. A former Georgia GOP minority recruitment expert says he's had enough of President Trump's divisive rhetoric and will an increase in the minimum wage be an issue in Georgia congressional races? Political Rewind starts now. I'm glad to have you all with us here for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, we're going to get right to work because we have a lot to talk about today. So let me get to the panel. Uh, it's Friday, which means that our lead political writer uh, of the AJC, Jim Galloway, is uh, with us. Uh, Jim, you are you appear in the Friday and the Sunday, the Wednesday and the Sunday newspaper, and uh, oversee the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Never stops. It never stops. Okay, I know. You're always working. Um, sitting across from you, if you're watching on Facebook Live, you'll see him uh, there, Leo Smith. Leo Smith served as the Minority Outreach Director for the Georgia Republican Party for how long? Uh, for four years. Four years, and uh, moved on from that post, and we're going to talk about it in a little while, but uh, you were an enthusiastic Trump supporter until not so long ago, right? I uh, opened up his campaign in Georgia at the Fox Theater by stumping for him and firing up the crowd. It was offered the co-chair of Georgia, co-chairmanship of his campaign in Georgia. And um, so uh, we have gotten to a tipping point, and uh, so I, there are some things I need to say. And we are going to talk about that uh, in a, a little bit while on the show. Uh, Amy Steigerwald is back with us. She teaches political science at Georgia State University. And uh, you are, I think, one of Georgia's leading experts on, among other things, women in politics. Fair enough characterization? I would be delighted to take on the mantle of that. <laughs> well, you, you're, you are, you're the author. You have written about well, women in politics and the challenges that they have to overcome to serve in elective office, right? I have. Um, I have a book with my co-author, Jeff Lazarus, called Gendered Vulnerability, How Women Work Harder to Stay in Office. We're quite proud of it. It came out last year uh, with the University of Michigan Press. So. All right. Well, we're glad you're here today. Thank you. Uh, and Caesar Mitchell is back with us. Caesar, of course, former uh, president of the Atlanta City Council, ran for mayor uh, back in 2016. And um, now, Caesar, an attorney with Denton's, the world's <laughs> largest law firm. You just joined Denton's a fairly short time ago. Yeah, I did. I'm really excited to be with the group. It's a bunch of folks that I've known for a long time yeah. outside of the the practice uh, of law, just kind of politically and civically in the community. And I'm, I am now an expert as well. Um, I'm an expert in how to uh, hook and unhook car seats in SUVs. <laughs> Why are you an expert on that? Explain three kids. That's right. Okay, I just want to make sure our listeners understand. And that's um, a good thing to know how to do because it is not easy. Yeah. Exactly. By the way, I do think that uh, you're, by introducing you as being with Denton's, it, this is deserving of a, 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 an explanation for our listeners. Mm -hmm. They will know that, Jim, we have a lot of people who are now at Denton's. It, it isn't 
necessarily because we have some sort of arrangement with Denton's. It's simply that Denton's has acquired people like Caesar, some of the top uh, former elected officials, political thinkers, really in the country. So that's why we have so many Denton's people, right, not a right. deal. And, and there's a generational aspect to it. I mean, 30 years ago, it was, it was, uh, it, it, it was R.K. Siegel doing the same thing, was it mm -hmm. not? I believe uh, he was he was he was uh, picking up all these all all these yeah. people who were who were who were experts in various aspects of politics. Yeah, R.K. having been a uh, major business leader in Metro Atlanta, a big pre uh, 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 contributor to President Clinton back in the day. So I know exactly what you're saying. People like Andy Young uh, worked with him. Uh, uh, John Ehrlichman worked yes. with him, so you're exactly right. All right, having explained why Denton's plays such a prominent role on the show, let's plunge into the topics at hand today. Jim, the, um, the state has hired the consulting firm Deloitte to study the landscape of uh, health care in Georgia and to be involved with helping craft the waivers that Brian Kemp says the state will apply for by the end of this year that will allow for at least a partial expansion of Medicaid and perhaps subsidies for some of the people who are buying insurance on the health care exchanges. Fair enough so far? Fair enough. Uh, we just learned the other day, they just released, Deloitte did, a study that they've now conducted that gives us a very clear and in some ways, startling picture of the healthcare landscape in Georgia. Right, right. It's a it is a 66-page uh, collection of statistics and rankings, telling telling you exactly where where Georgia is. I think it's I I think it's an, actually a very good thing, because what it does is is it it lays out a a a kind of common. A common, uh, common uh, uh, set of figures and facts that both Democrats and Republicans can use in this coming uh, discussion over over waivers. But you're right. I mean, it is it is it is daunting in many many ways. I mean, uh, you know, our, our uninsured rate is 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 15 percent. It's uh, in some counties it's 30 yeah. percent. Mm -hmm. You know, the national average is 10 percent. Uh, it is. Uh, it's got some. It's. Uh, it's got some. Some really, really interesting let, figures. Let, there. We're, we're, let's let's run down some of the figures and get everybody engaged in this conversation. First, uh, the most uh, interesting figure that comes out of the top line of this is uh, Deloitte found that approximately a million and a half residents in the state of Georgia lack insurance. How many Georgians live in this state now? Uh, 10 million 10 plus. plus million? Mm -hmm. And a million and a half of them, according to Deloitte, are without insurance. The governor's office would say that includes uh, uh, people who, um, they, the other day they said to me, well, you know, that includes prisoners in our uh, prison system and a number of other people. But a million and a half people is still a lot of people. It is. It is. So starting point with that, uh, Amy, what do we make of the fact that we have such a large number of uninsured, many of whom, as we'll see as we drill down on some of these figures, are uh, poor. Well, and I think that is one of the big things. So Georgia, uh, for those that have not been following it as closely, decided not to do the Medicaid expansion, which would have taken those that are covered in our Medicaid. Uh, there was a 90% coverage rate by the federal government, but it was an option thing that for a state to do. And that would have taken it up to a slightly higher uh, percentage of the poverty level. It would have added 660,000 people. Exactly. And so one of the things that we did was not do that. So uh, that puts our rate actually, we're still higher 
fact, the average of non-expansion states is about 26% uh, of those that are that are 100 that are below the 100% federal poverty rate um, are not, whereas we're at almost 29% of our population. And I do think it's important to note, because I had to go look it up because I was curious, that um, the 100% of the federal poverty rate for one person, that's a income of $12,490. Mm. For a family of four at the 100% poverty rate, that's $25,750. So it's not a lot of money. I mean, we're talking about people that are not making a lot of money. And I, what I thought actually was one of the most surprising things to come out of this was how many of the people that were fallen to this uninsured but are also employed. Yeah, let, we're going to get to that in a few Sorry. minutes. Let's start <laughs> marching through these figures uh, in uh, Caesar and Lee. Yo, we want you to jump in in a minute. So, um, as we've basically said, Georgia's uninsured rate is 14.8%, virtually 15%. And as Jim just pointed out, in some counties, 30% and more of the people do not have insurance. 31% of the uninsured, according to the Deloitte study, are families with incomes less than 25%. And as Amy pointed out, when well, uh, $25,000, and as you look at the national figures for, for that same uh, income level, we're at 10.5, or for all income levels, it's 10.5%. Caesar, what do you make of uh, that when you see those figures? Well, the first thing, I, I think it takes us back to the debate about healthcare as a privilege versus a right. Uh, and this just shows that if, you know, in a, in a culture of, of saying that really only the folks who are privileged can have healthcare, uh, so many folks who are poor uh, and have, you know, minimal access to revenue or, or funds, uh, you know, uh, just don't get insurance. And I think that's a problem. I think we've got to really deal with that debate at a fundamental level, number one. I think number two, I think politically, I know we'll get to this, I think it creates an opportunity for uh, Governor Kemp uh, to kind of move aggressively on this, even though obviously the political winds uh, of the Republican Party say, well, this is not a right, number one, and you know we don't want to contribute to the Affordable Care Act, which we believe is broken. Uh, but I think this just shows uh, that we cannot uh, continue in a state like Georgia where the poverty rate exceeds the national average. Yeah, Jim, and then let me get Leo in here. Let's point out something that you have uh, noted that's really interesting about it. This report is about 64, 65 pages long. And there's something printed across every one of those 64, 65 pages. What does it, it say? It is the phrase on every page. It is the phrase for discussion purposes only, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, which means uh, which means there's nothing there's nothing in between those lines that Governor Kemp is ready to commit to. Right. And, it, and it, to me, that shows you how volatile the, the issue is in terms of how unsettled, let's say, the issue is, especially on the Republican right. side. Nor has Deloitte in this report offered any recommendations about what they what the state ought to look at in terms of waivers but but leo while uh, while the governor while the republican legislature has said over and over again that they believe in a limited expansion of medicaid and and they may look for waivers to do that are these figures 
going to make it hard for them to stick with that when people start to absorb how many uninsured Georgians there are out there? Well, I think the figures are consistent with what I, I believe Governor Kemp understands. This is a daunting task, and he understood it to be uh, such a daunting task that for the first time we had a committed, committed study done. Um, and he inherited this issue as a campaign issue really from Governor Deal, who, you know, sort of punted on the idea of looking at you know, aggressive solutions to, to replace the, the expansion of Medicaid. And so he's now in a situation where he has to be diligent about finding out the facts and bringing people together to come up with the best ideas for this grand opportunity. Mm -hmm. As Caesar said, I think now if we can bring the best minds and the best people to come and look at that governor deal type solution where he always said, said I'd like the economic engine to, to drive the success of benefits for Georgians. So now we see that we're behind when it comes to the health viability of people to contribute to this great economy. How are we going to address that? Well, that's, that's but the, that that's said, true. I rephrase the question, reframe the question for, for all of you to weigh in on. Does, don't these figures suggest that it's going to be hard for the governor and Republicans to push for just a very limited expansion of Medicaid? Aren't the politics yeah. going to move yeah. in a different direction? If you're saying you, you've got 1.5 million Georgians yeah. uninsured and you're only going to, say, move the needle and insure 200,000, that, yes, that becomes a, that becomes yeah. a difficult matter. Yeah. The, the right thing that's going to have to happen, and I'd and I, like, uh, is it Representative Dean Burke? Um, is suggesting, you know, softly, you know, without saying these are concrete ideas, I'm not pr proposing any legislation, but we're going to have to start looking at corporate citizenship. What is the responsibility of people not to just have a job offered, but to make sure that that job also uh, contributes to the well-being of the person in that job? And, and that's a really interesting question and, and, because yeah. you're getting to what's the, is, 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 is business obligated to provide health insurance? Well, and we want, let's, I want to talk about that in a minute, but I want to give everybody a chance on this. Our Caesar, yeah, is uh, this going to push the governor and his people to think maybe we've got to expand more broadly than we first wanted to do? Well, first, I think it, it gives Governor Kemp a tremendous amount of cover to go ahead and pursue what he's been pursuing, and that's, you know, waivers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I, 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 but I also think it, it really ends the debate about that. I don't think he's got to do a lot of fussing and biting and twisting arms on that issue of waivers. Uh, the question now becomes is where do we go from here? Yeah. Uh, because I think now the conversations are going to end pretty quickly. I, I hope it will end pretty quickly about waivers and we'll get that done. But the next question is next year and the year after next, where are we going to go in terms of expansion? Amy? I think that's coming. I think the other thing that's really difficult in this are on two levels. Number one, that the counties in the state that have the highest levels of unemployment, and so you have people that aren't able to get insurance already through their businesses, are a lot of the rural counties, yeah. right? So those are what Kemp focused on, but they're also the ones that are hardest hit right now, right? There's a lot of issues. There's not Their jobs are leaving in those areas. Certainly, there's all of the issues after Hurricane Michael with uh, farming and agriculture and causing issues there and what, what impact that's going to have. Um, and so I think that's one big issue that's going to have to be addressed. And I think the other big one is the number of children in this. Um, our level of children that are uninsured, right, who are not of an age where they're going to have their own job, and so they're having to depend on others, is really pretty high, especially compared to the national average. And so I think that that's going to be another issue where uh, probably politically it's a lot easier for people to come together to say, we've already got, right, peach care in place. Peach care can cover a lot of people, right? Let's expand and make sure that everybody who can be can be 
covered there because sick kids lead to lots of bad things, including not being able to go to school and all of that comes from there. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I don't know if we're ready to move on to other numbers. I, the, the, uh, what would you like to talk about, I Mr. Would like Galloway? To, I would like to talk <laughs> about the fact that 60% of all of those uninsured over the age of 16 already have a job in Georgia. <laughs> Let's, actually, that's a great starting point uh, for our next set of figures. Um, it, and, and it does go to your point, to Leo's point, that uh, there is a role here for the private sector and for individuals uh, to step up and make sure they uh, look for opportunities to be insured, which is essentially what you were talking about, to some, or the, and the businesses that employ them, right? Correct. So, with that in mind, um, in 20, first of all, in, in 2017, according to Deloitte, um, the average annual premium for someone who is getting insurance in a group plan was $487 a month. That's, to me, relatively expensive. Uh, I know we don't pay that amount of money here at GPB, thank uh, goodness. Um, 40, almost 42% of employers offer health insurance in the state, and 82% of the employees... Uh, in the state work for employers who offer health insurance. But that's, yep, go ahead. But 76%, <laughs> only 76% of those employers, uh, employees qualify for insurance coverage. Yes. Okay. So what does all that mean to everybody? Amy? It means that there's a, number one, it means that there's a lot of places that responded uh, to the Affordable Care Act, unfortunately, changing how many hours they would assign to people. So in many ways, the discussion we're having doesn't hit salaried folks as much, right? So if you're working sort of your traditional white-collar job where you have a salary, you're considered full-time. But for a lot of people, right, they work hourly, and those hours that they are given also predicates whether or not they're able to even, that the employer is required to offer them health insurance, and that magic number is 30 hours. And so at a lot of places, we've we've seen sort of across the country that at a lot of the hourly places, people were um, given less hours because by that way, the, then the employer is not required to have to give them those same benefits. So, Leo, um, does this argue for the governor and the legislature to look for ways to increase the contribution that private businesses are making to ensure their workers? Or is that simply too liberal a concept for a conservative Republican legislature? I wouldn't say that it's too liberal, but it is is outside the, the general framework of conservative idea, ideas. Now, it is not outside the conservative framework to put the individual in charge of how they respond to a market, right? So. Instead of the companies having all the power to determine whether or not someone has access mm -hmm. to and the ability to create insurance for themselves, then the individual uh, can have more choice if the market is more competitive and if the market is more responsive to the individual. One example would be health savings accounts. You know, being able to make it so that anybody, including someone on wages working for a company, can immediately open up a health savings account. Look, methods like that can be part of the solution, not all of it, but part of it. Caesar, um, it's interesting that Amy and Jim both make that point that there are many more companies that offer insurance for their employees, uh, but the percentage of employees able to take advantage of it don't meet up to the number who work for those companies. I think, and again, that's where government has to come in and play a role, quite frankly. And, 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 and I think, um, you know, this is really a moral issue. And I think this report 
uh, shows a correlation between poverty and lack of access to health care. And so that becomes a moral question that breaks and crosses, you know, party lines. It crosses uh, from business to government and goes back from government to business. And so really the question some very savvy elected official is going to put on the table uh, for his or her colleagues to consider in the state legislature or some enlightened leader in the corporate space is going to put forward. And that is, you know, we know we're in a state where people are poor. Uh, and, and, and in this state, these poor people are working. Uh, do we want to have the working poor who are also the working sick? And I think when you frame it up like that, I think it really sets the context for a moral debate that we won't be able to avoid, even after uh, Governor Kemp, you know, expands Medicaid. So, Jim, let me let me uh, try to uh, sum up just what we've done so far. I mean, we've talked about the, this report arguing for an expansion of Medicaid, but the governor's already said there should be some expansion of Medicaid. But it also points us again in this direction of the role of business in helping provide insurance for people in the state as well. Right, and 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 look for the since the ACA came online in 2009, we've had we've had a building debate over what should the connection between healthcare and employment be. Should that be should that be a solid link? You know, we've already said that we we all, we already have that. That's what pre-existing condition is is uh, that that debate was all about because it severed the link between the the permanent link between the employer and the employee as far as healthcare cons, is concerned. And now we've got now we've got a question of whether if you've got if you've got all this small business employment in Georgia and that's the, that's kind of the economic driver and they can't afford policies how do you how do you how do you how do you get uh, health health care to employees uh, it becomes it becomes a very very a very very deep philosophical question yeah um, I mean, let's keep marching through some of these. You talked about children before, mm -hmm. peach care children, children who are um, mm -hmm. uh, being helped by, by the, the federal government again in terms of their insurance. Um, this report has some pretty startling figures about that as well. Um, it, first of all, it says that a majority of uninsured children under age 19 are mostly in metro Atlanta. Mm -hmm. But it then goes on and it says that in some rural counties, the percentage of uninsured, uninsured children is over twice as high as the average across the rest of the state. In Talbot, 21%, Quitman, 19 Brantley, 18 McIntosh, 18 Barry, and 16 These are children who are not insured. It's those figures, too, hit you hard, don't they? They do. I mean, admittedly, I have a child at home. And so the idea that, right, not be able to address these issues because, I mean, it's number one, it's heartbreaking when your own child is sick. But I think the other side of it is that, right, we forget how important things like preventative care is and making sure that uh, children are getting checked that they're right there's a lot of stuff going on when they're little right they've got to get bigger and when you're doing that there's a lot of things in your body that are changing there's a lot of things that can potentially go wrong and so going in for those yearly checkups are ways that we're able to find that that's where student you know kids get the vaccinations that they need it's where we make sure that when somebody is sick that it's not just a cold but that they don't have some other really horrible disease that again is going to affect the people around them and so so that's how, for example, things spread, right, is because 
you're not able to go to the doctor, you're not able to go check, you've got a sore throat, and you just have to hope it's not strep. But, you know, if it is, you're going to give it to everybody in your family, you're going to give it to everybody at the school who yeah. also similarly may not be covered. All right, let's look at one more figure. Uh, Jim, I know this is of particular interest to you, and I'll ask everybody to weigh in on the whole report and what it says to them before we take a break. You're particularly interested in what this report says about rural hospitals. Now, we do know that uh, we've already lost, what, seven, seven. rural hospitals uh, since 2010, which is the third highest rate in the country. Only Texas and Tennessee are higher. But you pointed out there's an even more dramatic figure. Right, right, right. There are, there are in, in this, this study uh, counts 63 rural hospitals uh, outside of metro area. Of those 63, 26 are in danger of closing right now. I mean, 26, that's, I mean, that's, that's far more than a third. This too argues, as many people have, Caesar, for whether we're going to expand Medicaid in such a way that rural hospitals will be able to benefit and stay in business, yes? Because yes. I, there is a percentage in here, and I don't have it at the tip of my uh, uh, fingers, that talks about how many uncompensated uh, cases there have been in the state, and there are a lot. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, and I know this is something that, that Governor Kemp has talked a lot about in terms of economic development and greater vitality in our rural communities. But again, you know, when you're talking about having a hospital in a rural community close, it's, that means it's not just Democrats or, or poor black people or poor brown people. These are white people and, and Republicans who all will not have access to a hospital and to care and to preventive care and emergency care. Uh, in, in these communities, and that's something you can't avoid. There was, um, the, 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 the study says basically that in, in 2017, uh, Grady Hospital had the most uncompensated care in the state of Georgia. Uh, it was approaching $250 million in one year. Yeah. Among rural hospitals, uh, the, 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 the one with the greatest burden was the Northeast Georgia Medical Center. Yeah. It's got four localities, mm -hmm. almost $75 million in uncompensated mm, care. That is incredible. So and let's, we're going to have to get to a break, but let me get, um, Leo, this report, let me get your overall take on this. This report gives us the clearest picture, I believe, we've had, really, on the state of health care in Georgia. What is your, and we're going to have to do this fairly quickly, but what's your expectation for how Governor Kemp and the legislature should respond to this as they move forward in crafting waivers? Well, I think this particular legislation will actually refer to the White House a lot, and they will get counsel from them on how to approach it, because this is a comprehensive issue that has to be solved with, uh, you know, our, with Washington, D.C. involved. Anybody else want to weigh in real quickly before we go? Amy? Um, I think, I, I totally agree with Leo that I think one of the things we're going to do is be looking to the White House. I mean, I think they're going to do a combination of waivers. Certainly the suggestion is wanting to do something similar to other places with work requirements and check-ins and things like that. Um, one thing we have seen a number of states do is that included, when they talk about sort of work requirements, it can also be um, established uh, community service mm -hmm. and things like that. And so that might be a great way, uh, particularly in the rural areas where there just simply aren't the jobs. I mean, when we look at the counties that have the 30% uh, unemployment rates, part of that is not that people are refusing to take jobs, it's that there really aren't there, but this could also be a way to be able to help the communities and go forward. Jim, final thoughts from you? I would go back to that 60% uh, figure on, 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 on these right to work, the, these work requirements, 60% of those 
above 16 years old and uninsured are already working. They're working. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, look, this report is going to drive conversation literally for months to come as the state prepares the waivers it wants to uh, ask the federal government for. So we will certainly return to it time and time again. Um, we got a lot more to talk about on the show today. Let's get our first break out of the way and we'll come back with a lot more. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. These days, people go to great lengths to shed the stress of daily life. There's acupuncture, deep tissue massage, meditation, yoga. At All Things Considered, we offer our own type of healing, invigorating news stories that span the rainbow of human experience. Nourish your mind and escape from the ordinary. Weekdays on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 here on GPB. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, we learned this week, and the first thing we want to do is send out our best wishes to Johnny Isaacson, who took a fall in uh, his apartment in Washington. It right. was in Washington. Mm -hmm. And has landed in the hospital with several broken ribs. And uh, so, Which are all, awfully painful oh, things to go Oh, horrible, through. I guess. I've never had them, but I, apparently they are. So that's the first thing. We hope he recovers quickly. His office put out a, a smart statement saying he's recovering well and he can't wait to get back to the work uh, that he's doing for the people of Georgia. Exactly what you'd want to say. But we have to be candid. This is going to raise a bigger issue in terms of Johnny Isaacson's age as he looks at running again in 2022 and the fact that we know that he is struggling now uh, very openly with Parkinson's disease. Right, and he's 74 years old. Yeah. Uh, his, his term expires in 22. Uh, 2022, excuse yes. me. Yes. And, and, uh, and uh, Isaacson, we will, let's lay down the caveat. He insists he is running for re-election. He's got a re-election campaign fund. And in Washington, you don't tell anybody that you're leaving and yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> uh, much more than, than, than three, three weeks before you're out the door because you lose all your clout. Uh, people don't come to you. They don't ask for things. Yeah, but Caesar, if you're a Democrat with ambitions for higher office, and I mean you in the broadest sense, I'm not asking you if you <laughs> want to run, uh, you're already thinking Johnny Isaacson may not want to run after 20, after serving out this term anyway. This kind of accelerates the thinking about a Democrat, and for that matter, Republican, who wants to jump into this race, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, but that means you don't know Johnny Isaacson. And, you know, so, um, you know, I, I, I will, I will, when he says he's running uh, in 22, I, I believe that. And I think anyone who, who uh, is paying very close attention should take take heed to that. You know, there's a saying, and this is probably not the best saying, but, you know, uh, many of our long-standing soldiers, so to speak, in elected office 
when you ask them if they're going to retire soon, they say, no, the only thing that's going to retire me is a pine box. <laughs> and so I, I certainly we're not hoping that for Senator Isaacson. In fact, you know, I, he's a good friend and I have a lot of respect for him. I've only been to the State of the Union one time as an elected official and I was, I was his guest. Uh, and no Democrat has ever invited me to do that. So uh, I don't, I think until he says he's gone, you know, you know, as they say, do, do nothing till you hear from me. Leo, I, I, I mean, I am well aware that even raising this subject and talking about it, if I'm Isaacson's people right now, I am thinking, Nigat, shut up. Because, because this is sort of a situation where you're saying, what are you trying to do, take advantage of a man who broke some ribs? Um, still, politics is politics. I mean, sure, the, the, the machine of politics has to make sure it's got a bench, and that's all part of it. And, I mean, you want to continue with the legislative leadership you've got, and this is a senior, <laughs> our senior senator for the nation. So, you know, first let me say that I'm happy to hear, even just in the last couple of minutes on my phone, that he is coming home this weekend. Um, and so we in Cobb County and all of Georgia are happy about that um, and wish him a speedy recovery. Um, so this this issue has long been fretted about, um, even when he was first diagnosed. And yeah, I he had a working. couple back surgeries right, a few right, years yeah, ago. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. So so, but you know, he clearly is not only very cogent, lucid, um, but he's also contemporarily relevant. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you just shared about him inviting you. Um, you know, this is a person even now with, we're going to talk about this a little later, with what goes on that matters to millennials, young people, etc. Johnny Isaacson still comes out and speaks out with relevance to those issues. Yeah, he's, he, he's more than able to continue to work. And, and we should yeah, note that, it, he, that he led the, 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 the Senate delegation to Normandy just on, on this mm -hmm. most recent June 6th celebration. He's also been uh, a voice of decency in the Republican Party as he has chosen the way he responds to some of the uh, um, comments tweets that uh, people have been upset about with President Trump, even most recently in terms of the accusations that Trump's been talking, racist talk, uh, Johnny Isaacson essentially uh, very firmly said, I, I'm not going to go there with him. I refuse to uh, uh, defend him in any way. So, you know, he's been a great friend to this show. That doesn't mean we agree with everything he has to say, of course. Um, uh, give us your take on... Um, uh, what's happening to the aging of American politicians in a year when you've got Joe Biden as the front runner for the Democratic nomination? Uh, look, President Trump is 73 at this point or 72. Uh, are we suddenly, Bernie Sanders is, I think, what, 114? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's going on here? <laughs> um, I think it's its own issue. I mean, so there's sort of different levels on all of this. And I think that on many ways, right, there's the saying that age is but a number. And certainly when my great aunt turned 100, she was more spry than I will ever hope to be. <laughs> um, whereas there are other people that that is, you know, not in the same way. And again, with, you know, mental acuity and things like that. But I think that there is this debate that we all sort of have, right? When's the time to say I'm done and to you know, unfortunately, kind of recognize what comes as I'm learning as I get older, that as you get older, more 
health problems come up. There are different issues that come in. And we do see that with the sort of top cohort, especially once you're getting into, you know, your 80s. And, and, and wait, and wait why are you looking at me when <laughs> well, Amy Steiderwolf <laughs> says you've got to know when it's well, time? All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, as a, as a member of a large organization, there are, there are certain young people who are looking up and saying, Gosh, he's close to retirement. Doesn't and, he need to go away? And that is my precise question <laughs> about why some Democrats and Republicans eager to move on might want to look now more seriously at 2022, Caesar. But you still have to, I mean, if Senator Isaacson runs for U.S. Senate, if no. he runs, oh, he absolutely. Then whoever decided they want to mount up and run just wasted all their time. Quite frankly, I'm just mm -hmm. saying that, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I, I, it goes back to this. You know, you talk about the issue of age. You know, what's the old saying in, in political debates? You know, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, with respect to how active you see uh, older Americans now in all aspects of life, it's healthcare, stupid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Healthcare. Yeah. All right, well, again, we wish Johnny Isaacson well, and really glad to hear, Leo, that you got this news before we did, that he is gonna be uh, home from the hospital and recovering there. So we, we wish him a speedy recovery. That means that you have some pretty good Republican connections still. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Why don't we why don't we do this? Um, we've got a couple other items that we can get out of the way very quickly and take a break and then come back and talk about your situation, uh, Leo. Uh, Jim, the Morning Consult, which has become a major polling arm of Politico, right. the online website, and which, in fact, I think I'm right, Amy. Uh, 538, which rates polls, gives Morning Consult a pretty mm -hmm. high rating. They released a. Uh, their most recent uh, polling of 50 states, governors, U.S. senators. Brian Kemp ranks 22nd among governors across the straight state in terms of approval. He's at 52% approval. Uh, David Perdue is in the top third of U.S. senators. He's a little lower, 48% approval, 26 disapproved. But... Um, they're both in fairly decent uh, pretty shape. Good, pretty good shape. I mean, especially Kemp. I mean, Kemp in January by by the AJC poll was at 37% approval. He moved up to 46 in April. So this looks like a a a a, a, a kind of a, a steady climb there. The only thing I would say is that this poll was the, the it was it was uh, it was conducted in uh, April, May, and June. He signed F, uh, HB 481 on May 6th, yeah. so it might not have have captured uh, a little bit of the angst. Yeah, and and I and the and the AJC. I don't know if you wrote the piece, uh, Jim, or someone, one of your colleagues, but points out that when the anti-abortion law was signed in uh, Alabama, which happened uh, in the middle of. Uh, or the governor of Alabama's approval ratings uh, went down a number of points. So we, we, we don't know what's going to happen with uh, Brian Kemp in terms of how 481 will affect him. No, I think that's exactly right. Okay. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting, Caesar, is among the uh, top uh, uh, senators, the top 10 senators, two of them are candidates for president. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders has the second highest approval rating of, of all the members of the U.S. Senate. And of course, these are figures from their own home states. He's second. Amy Klobuchar is sixth in terms of best approval. Elizabeth Warren is in the bottom 10. But we've had other polls that show us Elizabeth Warren hasn't been terribly popular necessarily in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when you look at Senator Sanders and Senator Klobuchar, I think they're both 
popular. Well, they're popular both for different reasons. I think, you know, yeah. Bernie Sanders has run for for uh, president a couple of times, and he's incredibly popular amongst a certain part of the Democratic base. And so his name recognition is very, very high. Uh, and then I think Amy Klobuchar as senator, Senator Klobuchar, I mean, she comes from a certain area of the upper Midwest. Uh, she has a lot of bipartisan appeal. And so, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, she is, I think she's an attractive presidential candidate in terms of just what she brings uh, to the table. Uh, I, I didn't quite, I didn't figure it out about Senator Warren because amongst Democrats, you know, particularly those who pay attention, I mean, they see her as a policy leader, quite frankly. And so I, I, that, I still can't figure yeah. out why. Well, I will was. say with Senator Warren, what's interesting about it is the way that they determined who were the highest ranked, where they looked at their approval ratings. Yes. And then to determine the lowest ranked, they looked only at their disapproval rating. So her disapproval rating is high, but her approval rating actually puts her in the top third. And, and so and what makes it very right. interesting okay. is that she's actually ranked 26. And then remember that Massachusetts mm -hmm. is, is kind of a very 50-50 state. It, it does have a Republican government. Exactly, because yes, she has right. a 50% mm -hmm. approval rating. And what I actually noticed with her, because, of course, I'm the political dork who had to go look at all the ratings, um, is she actually <laughs> only has 11% don't know. So in yes. comparison, one of the uh, lowest. Senator Purdue, right? It's one of the lowest, right? He has 26% don't know, right? So he's a 48% approval rating, but that 26% don't that's know is a all pretty right. big number. All right, we, we only so, got a couple minutes for a break, but that's a great uh, point to make, and it raises a question, Leo. Our 48 percent, he's under 50 percent with a lot of unknowns in the state. If I'm a Republican, on one hand, I feel confident that Purdue is edging up there toward 50 percent approval, which is always good in a reelection campaign. On the other hand, 26 percent don't know who he is. That gives Democrats a lot of room to try to define him in this next election. Yes. Well, they certainly can in the in the. the I think the easiest definition that they're going to try and attach to him is that he's, you know, he's Donald Trump's, you know, joined at the hand. mate, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's going to be difficult for him. I know that he's now just getting in full swing of his uh, fundraising in Georgia. He's spending a lot more time in Georgia these next couple of weeks. And uh, I think that's when he'll start to send out his own brand. And I do want to say that during the Martin Luther King celebration, David Perdue was there. He was on the pulpit and he was active. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. And when we come back, let's talk about... Um, what is going on with Leo Smith, former cheerleader for President Trump? Not so much anymore. We'll do that in just a moment. <laughs> Downton Abbey is coming to a movie theater near you. And right now, GPB has your opportunity to see the new feature film before anyone else. Join us on Sunday, September 15th in Atlanta for an advanced screening and VIP reception. Tickets are limited, so make sure we hear from you now. Go to gpb.org slash Downton Tickets to find out more and reserve your seat. That's gpb.org slash Downton Tickets. Don't miss out on this opportunity to support GPB and see Downton Abbey on the big screen. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, looking back on Apollo and ahead to the future. We'll talk with engineers building NASA's new space launch system about their plans to go back to the moon and beyond. Plus, how archivists and museum curators can help to tell the stories of space to the next generation. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Join us for Science Friday this afternoon at 3 here on GPB. So Jim Galloway, 
you sat down the other day with your uh, friend over here, Leo Smith, and you asked him all of these leading questions. It was in your office, too, by the yes, way. Yes, I know it was in my <laughs> office, in which you said, where are you on Donald Trump? Right. Well, here, here's, here's here, the story behind that is that uh, I went to two Donald Trump rallies uh, 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 during the 2016 campaign. The second one was in the Fox Theater. Vince Dooley was there. Herman Cain was there. And this young guy named Leo Smith was there just kind of pumping up that crowd. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, Leo, Jim's questions, which he wrote into a column, and your responses into a column, uh, related to this past week, in which uh, a great many people uh, believe that Donald Trump crossed a line into really racist comments about the so-called squad, the four women of color, freshman uh, members of Congress. And you essentially said that that's when the moment came that you realized that having been a big supporter, you couldn't do it anymore, right? Right, and, and, and there's a number of reasons, and, and I, I want to acknowledge that great interview. If, if the listeners haven't seen it, the the um, the, the Sam Olins, the uh, former Attorney General, his interview on, on, on Political Rewind, and so on the GPP.org. He, he talked the other day yes. about about how anti-Semitism dogged right. him throughout his elected career. And Go how ahead. he wished he'd spoken up during yes. that time. Yeah. Yes. But had he spoken up during that time, he could have risked not becoming attorney general. And there's work that he's been able to achieve. So this stuff is really nuanced. And so my decision to do that, even though I am pro-Trump policy, um, and I advocated him on, on in, in, from that vein, um, choosing to do that is because you get to a point where you feel like the caustic environment and the strategies being used are now becoming institutionalized, that these things are becoming systemic. An individual's effort from a conservative, independent, you know, libertarian kind of viewpoint, people acting on their own are not as troublesome as somebody who has systemic power, um, institutional power, um, to be able to uh, actually go against the spirit of our constitution. Um, in, in other words, you can, you can, you can deal with the, the odd person here or there yeah. who might offend you personally. Or even the odd comment that people might think that was a racist comment. Mm -hmm. But when you say something that actually goes against the system that we, we've created and even our founding fathers have created, you know, and we're talking about uh, federal law uh, section 7, uh, the federal employment, um, where you cannot refer to someone in uh, any federal office, government office, etc., based on their heritage, their, you know, their race, or anything like that. And by looking at any one of these people, it could have been Bernie Sanders, but it wasn't, um, and telling them, go back to the country you came from, that is saying that this is not your home. This is not the place that you have rights at. That's a totally different thing than any other thing that he's Leo, is it for. fair to say, it is, I know it's fair to say that you think those remarks by the president were racist. Those remarks were racist, correct? I no, I, and I'm not saying that because look, well, I am. Bill, yeah, and, I am. and look, and I understand well, I, why, I want to get you I, in I the mix on why this. people are saying they're racist. Now, I want to say there's a difference between a remark, because racism has a definition, and it is in Webster. And I used to work in equal opportunity affirmative action at Virginia Tech. And this is why I know the, the federal employment law, right? But at the same time, the term racist means that you have judged that well, person as a wait, character. Wait, 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 wait. Right? Caesar, let me get you in the mix, too. Yeah, the I mean, question, yeah. there is a difference between calling what he said 
racist and saying he is a racist, which is a distinction Leo's trying to make here that I think for many people will be a difference, a distinction without a difference. I guess if a person makes racist comments over and over and over again, I don't know if that makes them. Well, there, well there you go. I mean, and, so. And, 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 and let me say this. I mean, I'm trying to, I want to let Leo off the hook. I've never felt more pity than I do right now for my, my black Republican friends uh, because now they're in a position where they've got to actually look past this kind of vitriol uh, if they want to be supportive of their party and their well, president. You know, but Caesar, and this is good. This is a good okay, discussion, right. and this is the kind of discussion that really needs to happen everywhere. Um, it, I don't really think it warrants pity, and, and here's why. Because Martin Luther King had to make the same kind of uh, concessions with LBJ, even though he mm -hmm. used the N-word often uh, mm -hmm. and, and put the federal government to investigate him, mm -hmm. etc. I mean, but he was so committed to what the outcome could be mm -hmm. if he sat down with this person who worked And LG, LG, uh, LBJ right. had an agenda yeah. that, 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 that was worth pursuing. Uh, right. Leo, now you, you, you told me that you can still, you're, you're not leaving the Republican Party. And why should I? And because the Republican Party should be defined by conservative values and not by individual action. So, so Donald Trump is not your classic conservative. He's not, it, some people even argue that he's not truly a Republican. But Amy, so, he now so, owns the Republican Party. And that may be true, but someone's going to have to be there to pick up the pieces when all of this is done. And that's there just, is a growing yeah. movement, even in recent polls, showing that more and more Americans, both from the far right and the far left, are saying, you know what, we don't like the extremes of either. We're going to identify true. as independents. The middle is, is growing, okay? True. And so people are looking for, they're starting to say, okay, we want reason. We want to stop this process. Now, here's what's really, really, um, really, really gets me, okay? I know because I have been, I'm a political consulting professional, that consultants are now using race baiting as political strategy. True. Well, that's the point. Now, okay. That's the right. danger. Let me say something. Okay? I, think, I think this is important. And, and that is happening no, in the Trump campaign. And, and that's very that's true. what I'm concerned about. So, and you so should it's be, a racist but trope. But here's, a racist a, trope. but here's the difference between what you're confronting uh, as an African-American Republican and what Dr. King confronted when he had to talk to LBJ, President Johnson. He had to go through Johnson. He was the sitting president at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to you, we're at a moment in time where you have a choice as to whom you're going to support in a political arena. Uh, and so whether that means you go with an independent party or whether that means you go and push for someone to primary Trump or whether that means you come over to the Democratic side, you have a choice and you don't have to go through Trump for anything. And I think that's a big distinction. And, and so I just, you know, I, it's, it's hard for me to, to stomach uh, hearing that kind of sentiment. I mean, it's hard to say that that's not a racist comment, and I think everyone uh, understands that it is, you know, but it's hard for me to stomach that because it, it has so many undertones, and, it's, and, and that kind of statement is documented in our culture as being a racist statement. Le Leo, now, what, what, kind of, what kind of reaction have you gotten from within the Republican Party, within the Georgia Republican Party? Well, from Republicans, from well, even from people who were formerly other executives within the Georgia Republican parties, I've, I've had um, folks contact me and wanted to, me to better explain to myself, explain what I said, and I, and I defend because you know they they interpreted what I said as Donald Trump 
is a racist. Now, I didn't literally say Donald Trump is racist. I said what he said was a racist trope. In other words, that because of the history of America and using that kind of go back to where you're from, mm -hmm. that is consistent it, with what racists have so to, to, let me to, get to Amy, let me get Amy. You know, yeah. so, so folks let have me, called me and talked. Amy, let me get you in here because I think this whole notion of he's a racist or his comments are racist. We used to go through this at the Anti-Defamation League. Mm -hmm. We would call someone's comments anti-Semitic, right. but we were very cautious about calling that person anti-Semitic because it's a bigger, uh, more involved uh, sort of philosophy to mm -hmm. say that. But how do you weigh in on all this? So what I'm seeing a lot of that I think is terribly concerning and that, you know, definitely I think Leo is sort of confronting, but that we're all confronting is this question of at what point do we say, I'm not going to just let it go past, right? As you mentioned, you know, MLK, that he sort of had to put up with it with LBJ. And I think part of what we're seeing is we've hit a point where a lot of people are saying, and we're seeing this with race, we're seeing this with gender, right? And the Me Too movement of, I don't have to put up with it anymore, right? I'm allowed to say, this is problematic, right? We should not use racist tropes. We should not use sexist tropes. We should not be uh, questioning someone's patriotism just because of the color of their skin. Yeah. And that seems radical to say, but yet it is radical to say because then we get into these debates of, well, are you saying Donald Trump is racist? Are you saying the person's racist? And so we're now not having a discussion about what was actually said, yeah. or from the perspective of the people who are harmed by it, we're having the discussion from the point of view of the people who said it. Well, and in many ways, yeah. kind of trying to make them feel better. And that's yeah. mattering too trying. much because the Virginia governor, a Democrat, actually posed in blackface next to a KKK yes, robe, and he's still there. Yes, okay? he is. And, and so, so that's what he did, it's not what he said. Uh -huh. And here, and that, and that <laughs> brings me to a very important point. I think you're absolutely right, trying to parse between the, the definition of racist versus racism, I think is a red herring, it's yeah. irrelevant. Quite frankly, you know, I would rather deal with a racist person who as a matter of their principle doesn't implement racist tools uh, to hurt me or, or my community. Right. Uh, then I would rather deal with someone who's not a racist, who would then choose, to your point, as many political consultants are doing. Jim, how is so this, this utilized racist? I mean, let, this isn't the first time that I've been through this yeah. kind of dilemma, yeah. okay? Because they asked me years ago um, about Governor Deal, when Governor Deal referred to ghetto grandmothers, he did, and he said, I'm gonna help push back the Affirmative Act, uh, the, the, the Voting Rights Act, okay? People asked me, uh, how can you support him? How can you campaign on his behalf? How can you help him? And I said, look, I'm more concerned about the policy ecosystem that somebody's creating so that I can have those people that I am identifying with that need help be empowered, get choice, get school choice, prison reform, those kinds of things through. Right. I am more concerned All about right. those things. I got to call a halt to this conversation. Jim, uh, the question I wanted to get to, we will now reserve for Monday show when you will be with me again. <laughs> All How right. is this going to play in Georgia races, congressional races particularly in the suburbs? We'll do that on Mondays. Political so, rewind. That, and and that, that's called a cliffhanger. That's a cliffhanger, <laughs> right. There's another, Jim Galloway, Amy Steigerwald, uh, Leo Smith, and Cesar Mitchell, thank you so much for being here today. I know we've only begun to scratch the surface on this very important conversation, but you know what? It isn't going 
away, obviously. Well, my op-ed in this morning's paper, you, there's more. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we go, I want to remind everybody that we're going to be on the road again in a couple of weeks. Uh, Political Rewind is going to Augusta. We'll be there on Monday, August 12th. We'll be at the Jesse Norman School of the Performing of the Arts at uh, 7 o'clock that night. Jim Galloway, you've said you want to come on out to Augusta with us. I, I think always that's like wonderful. I like to get out to Augusta. All right. Well, we will uh, all be there. If you want to reserve a seat, they're free. Just go to politicalrewind.org. We ask you to go ahead and register because that way you don't show up. And I have to say to you, well, we don't have a seat for you. What are you doing here? <laughs> so please come out to Augusta and be with us on Monday, August 12th. In the meantime, that's it for us on today's show. We're back Monday at 2 when we will deal with the cliffhanger that Jim Galloway mentioned. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you on Monday.